Father, we choose this morning to bow before the Lord of creation, the one who has given us hope and joy and peace, salvation, eternal life. And Lord, as you came and dwelled in the midst of Israel, so we invite you to dwell in our midst here this morning, that you will take your word and drive it deeply into our hearts and give us the desire to, to live it and to exhibit its truth to all of those who are part of our contact day by day. Father, I just pray that you will guide every thought, every word this morning, that it might bring honor to your name. I pray that you will bless in our Sunday school and wherever the word of God is being proclaimed at this moment, that Christ will be exalted and souls will be transformed by the power of your great spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to read this morning, beginning in the 10th chapter of the book of Numbers, at verse 11. Numbers chapter 10, beginning at verse 11. We read this passage last week towards the end of class, and so what I'm going to do this morning is uh, read some of the verses and kind of skip through the passage here just to get the sense of what is being said here. Numbers 10, 11. Now it came about in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th of the month, that the cloud was lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony. And the sons of Israel set out on their journeys from the wilderness of Sinai. Then the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. They moved out for the first time, according to the commandment of the Lord through Moses. And the standard of the camp of the sons of Judah, according to their armies, set out first. Verse 15, at the end, tribe, then came the tribal army of the sons of Issachar. Verse 16, the tribal army of the sons of Zebulon. Verse 17, then the tabernacle was taken down, and the sons of Gershon and the sons of Merari, who were carrying the tabernacle, set out. Next, the standard of the camp of Reuben. Verse 19, the tribal army of the sons of Simeon. Verse 20, the tribal army of the sons of Gad. Then the Kohathites set out, according to carrying the holy objects, and the tabernacle was set up before their arrival. Next came the standard of the camp of the sons of Ephraim, verse 23, the tribal army of the sons of Manasseh, and verse 24, the tribal army of the sons of Benjamin. Then the standard of the camp of the sons of Dan, verse 26, the tribal army of the sons of Asher, and verse 27, the tribal army of the sons of Naphtali. This was the order of march of the sons of Israel by their armies, as they set out. As I emphasized last time, Moses didn't just say, hey guys, let's go. And they, everybody picked up and kind of shuffled and, and, and bumped their way trying to move ahead. Now this was a very orderly march. It was well planned. The, the orders and the direction was given before they even began to move out. And what we're told in this passage is, first of all, let's recall the image that we, we uh, brought up in our thinking last time. The tabernacle complex was built in a way so that the curtain that opened into the courtyard and the curtain of the tabernacle itself faced east, faced towards the rising sun. Now, the camps of the tribes were arranged around the tabernacle in the manner that we read about in this passage. The Three tribes were camped to the east, three tribes were camped to the south, three tribes were camped to the west, and three tribes were camped to the north. 
the ex exact arrangement, of course, is not given, but uh, we, we are told that that's where they were camped. And in this passage, we read that Judah is the lead tribe. Judah is the point of the spear. The, the uh, advance guard of the vanguard is the tribe of Judah. This, of course, is something that's been building through our whole study. As we looked in, in the book of Genesis and through the book of Exodus, we have, we have seen how the tribe of Judah has emerged. You remember that Judah was born fourth, fourth son of Jacob, fourth son of Leah, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. These were the first four. And as you go through the whole long list, there's no particular reason why Judah should be thought of as more prevalent than any of the others. But you'll notice that if you go back and study the, the last chapters of the book of Genesis, so the last 13 chapters or so, 14, 15 chapters, you discover that Judah first begins to show up when they have this discussion out there near Dothan what to do with this dreamer, Joseph. They've thrown him in a pit, and uh, they're talking about killing him. And probably the ones who were most uh, vocal about killing him were Levi and Simeon, the ones, of course, who had been so interested in uh, carrying out bloodshed back at Shechem. What we find there is Judah says, why should we kill him? What profit is there in our killing this young man? Why don't we sell him to the Midianites? Now, was Judah's real thought that we can make some money? I don't really think so. I think Judah's thought is we should not shed the blood of our own brother. And this was his excuse to kind of cover it up, to kind of calm Levi and Simeon down and to uh, make them think ra rationally here. And, and so here Judah shows up for the first time in exhibiting some sort of leadership. Later on, we have a whole chapter committed to Judah's incest, where he fathers twin sons by his own daughter-in-law, Tamar. And, and, you know, it's kind of an interesting little uh, chapter just sandwiched in the story of Joseph here. And you have a whole tribe committed to this, this act of incest here on the part of Judah, which doesn't seem like a real positive thing. But you remember that when the Joseph uh, situation developed and the brothers went down there to get grain and, and they ran into this Lord Prince down there who was giving them a hard time, and they had to go back to get grain the second time, it was Judah who said to Jacob, I will be surety for Benjamin. Not as Reuben had said. You know, Reuben, the firstborn, he says, give him to me, and, and if I don't bring him back, you can kill my sons. Well, I mean, what a thing to say to Jacob. You know, because one of his sons doesn't come back, he's going to kill his grandkids. That makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, but Judah doesn't make any such rash argument. He says, I will be responsible for the boy. Personally, I will be responsible for the boy. And, and then he took that very seriously. And you remember the situation when they went down and they, you know, Jacob was, I mean, Joseph was giving them a hard time again and he put their money back in the silver cup and it was found in Benjamin's sack. And, and they all came back. It says Judah and his brothers returned to Egypt. It's an interesting situation. It says Judah and his brothers it doesn't say Reuben and his brothers or Benjamin and his brothers. It says Judah and his brothers return. And then, of course, when, when Joseph put on the hard face there, it was Judah who said, take me in the place of Benjamin. Take me in the place of Benjamin. And when we study Genesis, I emphasize the fact that this was a type of Messiah. Whatever was in Judah's heart, 
Whatever was going through his mind, he was acting in a messianic way here as he was willing to offer himself in the place of his brother Benjamin. In the 49th chapter of Genesis, I want to go back and read that again because it helps us to understand what is happening here. This, of course, is the um, prophetic prayer blessing of Jacob upon his sons. And in the 49th chapter, beginning at verse 8, he he has given the blessing to Reuben and to Simeon and Levi, and these have not been particularly good blessings, you know. Reuben, you're as unstable as water. Uh, Simeon and Levi, cursed is your anger, for it is fierce. And then he says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp, and the prey, my son, for, from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies like a lion, as a lion who dares rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And the general interpretation of Shiloh is Messiah. So already there's a prophetic statement coming from Jacob. I don't think Jacob made this thing up. It was the Spirit of God speaking through him, prophesying as to what would be Judah's position. Now as we come to this time in the wilderness, we discover the tribe of Judah is the largest tribe. There are 186,000 men uh, in the book of Numbers here between the ages of 20 and, and upwards counted on behalf of the tribe of Judah. No other single tribe had as many people. Now, of course, if you want to count Joseph's tribe as Ephraim and Manasseh and add them up, then you have a similar amount or even possibly a greater amount. But of single tribes, Judah is the dominant tribe and always will be the dominant tribe. Throughout the history of the Old Testament, it will be the largest tribe What is interesting in addition to this is that is the name given to the southern kingdom of Israel. When Israel becomes divided with Jeroboam and Rehoboam, the southern kingdom becomes known as Judah as the northern kingdom became known as Ephraim. And it was interesting, I checked this just to make sure, the name Judah shows up far more times in Scripture than does any of the other names of the sons of Jacob. Joseph's name shows up maybe 300 times. Judah's name shows up 800, over 800 times. And even Levi, whom you think, well, Levi, Levites, you know, even that is is only a quarter of the number of times that the name Judah shows up in Scripture. So we have here the leadership of Judah exhibited. It is the lead tribe right out in front in the movement of, of the people here. And immediately uh, behind them comes the tribes, came the tribes of Issachar and Zebulon. And together they form the vanguard, the, the arrowhead, if you will, of the whole encampment. And then we're told in this passage, immediately behind them came the two clans of Levi, headed by Gershom and Merari, who were responsible for carrying all of the curtains and... and uh, the coverings for the tabernacle, and then the framework and foundations of the tabernacle. So they tore the place down, and and they carried this on the wagons that had been given as gifts in the earlier passage that we read. Then we're told, 
came the tribes from the south. Now, as you look at the campment from above, let's say you're in a helicopter up above and you're looking down at the encampment, they will break camp in a clockwise manner. You start out with, let's see, I better face the way you are. You start out with Judah over here to the east, then it moves to the south, the west, and the north is last as you move around the clock in that way. And so following Judah, you have the southern tribes of Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. And they're the ones who paved the way for the Kohathites. And the Kohathites were the ones who carried all the furnishings of the tabernacle, uh, it, which would, of course, be the ark, the, the, uh, the golden altar of incense, the menorah, the, the brazen bath, uh, the bronze altar, and all of those things would be carried by the Kohathites. So you have a group of three tribes. You have the two clans that are carrying the tabernacle itself. Then you have another set of three tribes, and then you have the implements, the furnishings carried. So they're dead center in the entire movement of the tribes. And then there, the, the rest of them come. The west tribes come next, and the north tribes come last. Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin from the west, and finally Dan, Asher, and Naphtali from the north make up the rest of the encampment. They come in as the rear guard. And what's interesting about this is that if you look at the numbers, you discover that the vanguard is by far the largest group. The, the group, the three tribes led by Judah, have the most males of, of warrior age in them. And then the second largest group of three is the Dan, Asher, Naphtali group who form the rear guard. So you have the large in the front, large in the rear, and the smaller groups in between. And that's how they moved uh, through the wilderness under God's direction. Now, as we look at the 10th chapter of Numbers, we discover that there's kind of a little dialogue here, or at least a statement made by uh, Moses, uh, sandwiched in between the story of the account of the um, movement of the people. So let's look at verse 29 of Numbers 10. Then Moses said to Hobab, the son of Reuel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, we're setting out to the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us, and we will do you good, for the Lord has promised good concerning Israel. But he said to him, I will not come, but rather will go to my own land and relatives. Then he said, Please do not leave us, inasmuch as you will know, as you know where we should camp in the wilderness, and you will be as eyes for us. So it will be, if you will go with us, it will come about that Whatever good the Lord does for us, we will do for you. Hobab was Moses' brother-in-law, son of Rule or Jethro, and someone that Moses had come to love and to care for and to want to continue to be associated with. And what we discover here is that Moses really is appealing to him on three grounds. Moses is first appealing to him on the ground of relationship. You're my brother-in-law. Now, you've all heard the, the, the phrase that blood is thicker in wa than water, and that's very true for Bedouins. For Bedouins, kinship is everything. Uh, if you can prove kinship, boy, I mean, you have, uh, you have whatever you need from a Bedouin group. may not always be given <laughs> with, a, with a heart of joy, but at least it will be given. Secondly, he mentions twice that if you come with us, the blessings that come upon Israel will fall upon you. I will see to it that we bless you as God blesses us. 
Then thirdly, he says, as kind of a practical point here, you have a knowledge of the desert, and we need that knowledge to find water and pasturage as we move through the desert to, to the north. Now, Moses had wandered this desert himself, leading sheep on behalf of his father-in-law. But Hobab had apparently a longer experience at doing this and a more recent experience doing this. And so Moses was making this offer to him. Now, we're told in the passage that Hobab, at least at first, turned him down, saying, I've got to go back to my own lands. I've got to go back to my relatives, probably referring to his father and uh, brothers and sisters and so forth that lived back in the land of Midian to the north probably east, depending exactly where Mount Sinai was, but to the north at least, whether east or west, uh, from where they particularly were at the moment. Some commentators believe that what Moses was really doing here was trying to woo Hobab into walking with the God of Israel. Don't go back to Midian. You know, you, you'll be outside the influence of Yahweh. Come with us. Live amongst us. You know, I think he was, in effect, evangelizing his own brother-in-law here. Now, what's interesting is, we're not told in this passage what happens. But there are later references, particularly in the book of Judges, which seem to indicate that Hobab probably gave in and came along. Because there are references to the descendants of this family, which do live amongst the Israelites. Now, what should we think about this? What, what should we think about Moses trying to get his brother-in-law to come along and be eyes in the desert? Uh, should we consider this as a weakness on the part of Moses and, and an unwillingness to really trust God fully? Well, God's going to lead us, but I'm not too sure about this. Um, I, I think, Hobab, you ought to come along <laughs> just in case. You know, I'm going to hedge my bets here. I want to find out exactly where I, I should go. I don't think that's what this is saying at all. I think what we have here is God is giving the timing. He will raise the cloud and move it, and that's the sign Israel is to move. And God will show the general direction, follow the cloud, and that's what they would do. But how would they know where they should stop momentarily to find water? How would they know the best exact route to follow the cloud and find the best pasturage? Well, Hobab could give them that. Uh, if you follow the cloud, just to the right up here, about uh, four kilometers, there is a spring, or, you know, whatever, so that they would know the best way to go, and, of course, the best place to hold interim camps. Because as we read about this very first uh, journey, we discover it's a three-day journey. The cloud is raised up off the tabernacle and is moving out ahead for three days. Well, you know, they didn't just go wandering off through the night, 72 hours following the cloud. They certainly camped. At briefly, at least, they stopped and threw out the bedroll and flopped on the ground for a few hours before they went on. So these interim camps, where would be the best place to hold that interim camp? Where would be the best place to be sheltered as much as they possibly could be, since they probably wouldn't be setting up their tents and all those things for the overnight camping? To me, there is a parallel here to us. God gives us direction, individually and corporately. God leads us through His Word and by His Spirit. And His Word and His Spirit become a lamp unto our feet. They become the cloud moving before us. But as we seek to understand His Word and to obey His call upon our lives, it is also incumbent upon us as we walk to walk, uh, walk the walk, to find advice 
and to find guidance from those who have walked the trail before us. That's the value of Christian literature. That's the value of reading uh, the great men and women of the past and, and, and what's been in their lives. Sure, these, these books are not biblically uh, inspired the same way the Bible is, but they are inspired by, by people who have walked by faith before. That's the value of seeking counsel from older Christians, people who have known the Lord longer than you and I have. When a big decision is coming along, uh, God is giving us a general direction for our lives, but what to do about this thing at this time? Sure, we need to pray. We need to seek the Word of God. But we also should seek counsel from godly people. You're all familiar with the passage in Titus. Let me just uh, turn to it for a moment. Titus chapter 2, beginning with the first verse. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious go gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. To me, in this particular passage, Paul is saying to Titus that it is the older men and the older women in the faith who are to be the models to the others, the teachers to the others. They're the ones who have been there before. And why are, they, why are older men being adjured to be temperate and dignified and sensible just so that they can look, you know, pious? No, so that they can be godly examples to the younger men. And why are older women... To, uh, uh, commanded to be reverent and, and not enslaved to gossip or wine and, and so forth, so that they can teach the younger women. We teach more by example than we do by word. So the example has got to be there if we're going to be teachers by, by word. And that's the role that older people need to play within the church, by example and also by official teaching, wherever that opportunity affords itself. And the younger within the church should be looking to the older. I mean, they're finding the cloud moving through their own study of the word and prayer, but they're also finding that advice, that help along the way through those who have been there before. I mean, God has built the church in a wonderful way. Unfortunately, sometimes we short-circuit it with our own ideas and programs, and sometimes we stick everybody of the same age all together and uh, you have a young person teaching young people. In some cases, the young person doesn't know any more than the people he's teaching. And, you know, that's not saying nothing good can come from that. But I, I think there's a short-circuiting there of, of what really would be better and what is more truly biblical. In the 10th chapter of Numbers again, beginning at verse 33, we have the account of the first journey. Just a short one. Verse 33. Thus they set out from the mount of the Lord three days' journey, with the ark of the covenant of the Lord journeying in front of them for the three days to seek out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set out from the camp. And then it came about when the ark set out that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, and let thine enemies be scattered, and let those who hate thee flee before thee. And when it came to rest, he said, Return thou, O Lord, to the myriads, thousands, the myriad thousands 
of Israel. Israel has been living for over 10 months at the base of Mount Sinai, and the people had become accustomed to the place. As bad as a place might be, if you live there long enough, you begin to become accustomed to it, and it becomes home, at least of sorts. And so there certainly was on the part of some a bit of apprehension. We're moving. Now remember, these people were not yet truly a Bedouin people. They had been resident in Egypt, permanently settled for 400 years. And I believe that the man who was a slave raised his children in the same little hut that he lived in, and the same with the grandchildren, and on down the line, that groups of Israel didn't know any more than one little stretch of the Nile River for hundreds of years. And now they're moving. <laughs> and I think it felt pretty good, even though Sinai may not have exactly been paradise, there they were Stay, they stayed there for a little while and, and camped and got to, to know the place. But at the same time, the environment wasn't exactly uh, the most uh, salubrious. Uh, there was a harsh environment in which they lived. It was not really suited for long-term living. And so I think there was some joy and relief in the idea that we're going to leave this place and we're going to go to a better land. Kind of like when we sing the songs, don't we, that... We're all looking forward to going to heaven one day and leaving the trials of this life behind. And uh, that's certainly the way certain, uh, some of the people felt. So there were these mixed emotions. Apprehension about moving, yet the joy of getting out of this place. But, but you know, all of that was probably covered up in the hustle and bustle of actually doing the move and getting started. They had to tear down the camp. They had to pack up for the journey. They had to make sure they had all the kids both human and uh, animal, and get on the way. The trumpet sounded. The march began. And I think as this happened, the thoughtful Israelites amongst them knew that they were going to have to live out this faith that they had been taught for the past 10 months there at the base of that mountain. No longer were they going to be able to turn their eyes to the quivering, smoking mountain but now they were moving out, and what they had learned there, what Moses had taught them from the Word of God, was now going to have to be lived out in everyday life. They were going to have to face the harsh realities of the dangers ahead. The peoples ahead, the land ahead, whatever was in the future for them. So what we could say is the incubator stage was over. And the realities of life were going to have to be faced. Would this unique religion survive in the face of all this world of paganism that surrounded them? Paganism which focused on every human appetite imaginable. And they had those appetites too. Would a faith which basically ordered them to deny the flesh and live by the Spirit live in the face of all these religions which focused on the flesh? This was the question in the minds, certainly, of some. But I think most, some probably were a little uncertain whether what they had learned would really work in the real world. But I think most moved forward with faith that the God who could make that, no, that, that mountain quake would be the God who could help them through. And they had faith in their leader, Moses, because he had never failed them yet. On the 20th day of the second month of the second year, of the Exodus. Israel began this first leg of the journey towards Canaan. We're told they marched for three days. 
And I think probably they, they set up minimal campsites in, in the night. Uh, they certainly wouldn't march ahead in the night and trip over every rock and, and bush along the way. Uh, they would camp probably from sunset at least, and, or you know, from dark at least until sunrise. And they did this until they reached the place where the cloud settled down again upon the ark. And they knew that this was the place they were to camp for a while. And there they would unpack. Over two million people moving through a line of march took a great deal of time. How would you like to shepherd two million people through the wilderness? It'd be a frustrating job. Many people have struggle just shepherding two people in a family, <laughs> let alone two million people through the wilderness. Everything had to be torn down. Everything had to be packed up. Now, they had learned a measure of Bedouin life in the travel from Egypt to Sinai. But in 10 months, it's easy to kind of forget. And they were going to have to learn to find the quickest way to tear down their tents and herd everything together and pack everything up and get it on the road so that they could move out in time. And then after three days, you have to stop and unpack it all and set it all up again. Well, for some of you who are avid campers, that may sound like fun, but for people like me <laughs> who camp in motels, it doesn't sound like a lot of fun. I, even though I've heard there's a new tent you can get where you just t take off the little button and you just throw it out there and it sets itself up. It just pops. <laughs> Getting it back down again might be a problem, but <laughs> setting up sounds pretty simple to me. Now, Let's think of this in a practical term. These people are walking. You're hurting your family, and you're hurting your herds, too. Sheep, goats, cattle. You're moving all these animals along. Now, uh, you know, I'm not much of a, or any kind of a farmer or a rancher, but from what I understand, animals don't usually go on a, a long-term walk without browsing whenever possible, at least cows and sheep and goats. So you can imagine that they're not moving very rapidly. And I, I could imagine easily that they might not move more than five to ten miles in a given day. Ten at max. More likely somewhere closer to five. And, and so in the period of three days, they probably don't move more than, let's just give them an extra mile or two, let's say they don't move more than 20 miles from the Mount Sinai. Who knows, maybe getting up on a rise, you can still look back and see Mount Sinai from where they were. And... I mean, it was not just moving all these animals, but it was, they were so strung out. I don't mean emotionally, but physically strung out over the landscape, you know. From Judah up in the front to, to uh, Naphtali at the rear, that's a long, long column to move. And you can imagine that uh, the people of Naphtali, when the trumpet sounded for Judah to move out, they could say, oh, well, we can kick back, sleep a few more hours, you know, before our turn get, comes to get up and get, to get going. But uh, it, it took them a while to, to make the move. I think during the interim period between the day they left and the third day, or the, after three days when the clouds settled down again, and, and they had the interim periods and, and the night fell the first night, the night fell the second night, I think they probably just camped wherever they were. I don't think they circled the wagons. You know, they just, whenever it came dark, they just kind of flopped down right there 
and slept by the wayside and got up and continued the march without breaking up the, the order of the march. I mean, can you imagine how many hours it would take them to get all together again? And how big an area they'd have to find to get all these tents, uh, well, even to flop out in the ground without tents? Probably not. Now, we're told in the passage uh, that the Kohathites uh, were right dead center in the middle. There were six tribes before them, there were six tribes after them. And there were the Kohathites carrying all of the furnishings of the tabernacle. But for one item, and the passage specifically tells us that the Ark of the Covenant was at the point of the spear. So the Kohathites carrying the Ark were actually on the very front edge. They were the first ones taking the steps out into the wilderness, followed by the tribe of Judah. So the Ark was in front. And the cloud moved ahead until the cloud came back and began to settle back down on the ark. And then they knew it was time to set up camp again. Now in the two verses that we read in this passage, 35 and 36, let me just read them again. Then it came about when the ark set out that Moses said, Rise up, O Yahweh. And let thine enemies be scattered, and let those who hate thee flee before thee. And then Moses, when, when, the, when the ark came to a rest, Moses would say, Return thou, O Yahweh, to the myriad thousands of Israel. This is a battle cry prayer. Moses prayed this prayer, apparently, every time they set out and every time they camped. You know, there is no law against written prayers. There are prayers that we can pray over and over again verbatim. And if they come from the heart, they're just as meaningful as extemporaneous prayer may be. And so Moses, I believe, prayed these words every time they set out and every time they came to camp again. He's saying that in the name and in the power of Yahweh, the presence of God would be there to rout the enemies of God and of Israel. And then every time the, carp, the, the, the ark came to rest, he invoked the presence of God in the midst of Israel. Thus they would march in the strength of God and they would camp under the protection of God. I mean, what more instruction do you need? Not only for them, but for you and for me. In Colossians 3.17 we read, and whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's a paraphrase of this prayer. Go forth in the strength of God and camp under the protection of God. That's how we're to live each and every day. Let me read you the words of the commentator Delich on, on this, these prayers of Moses. He writes, Moses said this not merely with reference to the enemies who might encounter the Israelites in the desert, but with a confident anticipation of the calling of Israel to strive for the cause of the Lord in this hostile world. In other words, what he is saying, we're not just talking about a physical thing here. We're not just talking about, oh God, keep us from, from illness and keep us from accident uh, as we go along the way here, or keep us from you know, enemies that might attack us. He is talking about going forth in the spiritual power of the Lord to overcome the spiritual powers of darkness in this world. Human power was not sufficient for this. But to accomplish this end, 
It was necessary that the Almighty God should go before his people and scatter their foes. The prayer addressed to God to do this is an expression of bold believing confidence, a prayer sure of its answer. And to Israel, it was the word with which the congregation of God was to carry on the conflict at all times against the powers and authorities of a hostile world. In other words, he was anticipating the Ephesians 6 passage here, that we're to go forth in the armor of God, and we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers. And that's, at least as Delich sees this in the prayer of Moses, and I think that's a true understanding. Because Moses is not just a physical person fighting a physical battle. He is a man of God, the prophet of God, a man who understands the heart of God, and he is seeking God's provision not only physically, but spiritually in the expansion of the kingdom. 400 years later, David wrote a prayer song based on this very passage of Scripture. Let me read a few verses from Psalm 68. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, let those who hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish before God. But let the righteous be glad, let them exult before God. Yes, let them rejoice with gladness, sing to God, sing praises to his name. Cast up a highway for him who rides through the deserts, whose name is Yahweh, and exult before him. A father of the fatherless and a judge for widows is God in his holy, na- holy habitation. God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in the parched land. O God, when thou didst go before, forth before thy people, when thou didst march through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens also dropped rain in the presence of God. Sinai itself quaked at the presence of God and the God of Israel. And thou didst shed abroad a plentiful rain, O God, and thou didst confirm thy in, thine inheritance when it was parched. Thy creatures settled in it. Thou didst provide in thy goodness for the poor, O God. The Psalm of David here is not just a statement of temporal need, but also of spiritual need. He's not just talking about physical problems, but of spiritual warfare here. And, and that is David's understanding of the prayer that Moses prayed there in the wilderness. And, and to whatever extent you can take the words of David here literally, in, in verse 9, we read, Thou didst shed abroad a plentiful rain. Uh, I mean, we can understand that to be the rain of God's goodness, the rain of God's blessing. But it could also be interpreted as a physical rain, that God brought rain in the wilderness. Many people today have a hard time understanding how possibly two million people, and that's why they start cutting zeros off, and you know, I'm not going to argue with, uh, about that point because nobody can prove it one way or the other. But... They start cutting zeros off, but they say there's no way those people could be sustained in the, in the Sinai wilderness. Go down there and look at it today. It's a parched place. There's no spring running down off of Mount Sinai today. Well, we're not talking about today. We're talking about 3,500 years ago. And we're also talking about a God of miracle, a God of might, a God who can do anything. 
And there may not be a spring on Mount Sinai today, but there was a spring on Mount Sinai then. And it's God who brings springs in the desert. And if God chose to bring rain and, and cause the Sinai to be green so that the animals had pasturage, that's God providing for his people. I mean, drop manna every day. There was plenty of food. And God isn't going to provide a manna without any water. And so God miraculously provided for them in the desert. And of course, what that teaches us is that God is a God who provides for us, for you and for me, physically as well as spiritually. You know, he's not the God who comes along and tells us to do, not to do all these bad things and to do these good things, but lets us live in, in, in abject poverty, not knowing how we're going to survive to the next day, who, who causes us to have illness with no hope. He, he's a God who meets all of our needs. And we need to rest in faith in that. We're going to be coming to the 11th chapter next Sunday, and right off the bat, I mean, they're not three days into the journey before some start griping and complaining. And God reacts right away. I mean, he torches some of them. Does that stop them? No. The very next passage, and they start griping about this, this manna. We don't have any meat. Where's the leeks and the garlics and all the good stuff from Egypt? Boy, did they have a selective memory. But, but that'll be our, our focus, because that is the human tendency. Now, you can walk with the Lord for 50 years and still you could be tempted at some point to say, oh God, where are you? I mean, I'm in this problem and I don't see any way out. I'm, I'm in a hopeless situation. How can I be? You know, God has always delivered and he always will. And he always did, but they griped anyway. Well, we'll study that next week.